Tonight's talk is going to be on feelings, nothing more than feelings. Uh, hopefully I'll cover what feelings are and why they're important, what creates feelings, and uh, when to trust our feelings, when not to. And finally, uh, how to slowly go about changing the way we relate to our feelings. So, most of us, if we're asked to point to where we believe our consciousness or our thoughts are situated, we would point to our heads. Actually, the reason why we would do that is because we're all told from a very early age that our consciousness is, a, is largely created by our brains. In ancient times, actually, people believed that consciousness and thoughts were located here, and that's where they would, in proprial perception, where they experience, they'd actually say, oh, I'm thinking here. And, uh, in fact, the ancient Egyptians believed the brain had so little uh, import personality, they re uh, routinely removed brains from the dead, but they keep other organs, which they believed hosted personality and would uh, allow for some form of rebirth. So, um, we tend to be very aware of our thoughts are the visuals of the world and the sounds. We don't tend to be very aware of what most of us call feelings, gut feelings. We're only aware of them when they become very disruptive, when we start having panic attacks or when we start feeling very anxious, nervous, when we start to have a, a heartache, which feel, can feel like a contraction in the chest. Much of our lives, though, we walk around fixated by thoughts and external sensations and very unaware of feelings, which is uh, interesting because um, feelings play an enormous role in all of the decisions that we make. And in fact, even though we're not conscious of how much we rely on our feelings, they're actually very much at the core of most of the decisions that we make throughout our lives. The Buddha called feelings Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A, -E you can pronounce it Vedana or Vedana. And much like contemporary neuroscientists, he somehow knew that feelings arose actually before thoughts. We have contact with an experience, a person, a thing. We see a bear, or what we think is a snake. We start to react, we have a gut feeling, and then we start to narrate our experience. Much like today's understanding of feelings, the Buddha proposed that feelings only have three basic messages. I like this, I don't like this, and I don't care about this. When we like something, the feelings in the body relax. When we don't like something, the feelings in the body get tense and contracted, and when we don't have any opinion, the feelings in the body don't change. There's a, a neutral quality to them. What's the difference between feelings and emotions? Feelings, and I'm going by the definition that people like Damasio, 
contemporary neuroscientists uh, claim that feelings are the, the internal body sensations that we're aware of that have an emotional, or a, uh, I should say, are reacting to circumstances. So, um, stubbing my toe is a sensation, a feeling of gut wrench when, I have when I'm thinking about my finances and my, my gut gets tight. Or I go through a disappointing experience and I feel hollowness in my chest. Those are feelings. Um, feelings are different from emotions. You can see my emotions. You can see when I'm sad. You can see when I'm happy. You can see when I'm frightened or angry. And uh, emotions come in many varied flavors. Feelings only come in like, dislike, uh, so physical agitation, physical ease, and, and neutral. And nobody can see my feelings. They're all internally registered by me. So feelings are the very basic like, dislike, don't care that I'm aware of and that you won't know about. Emotions are the, the what results from feelings. My feelings turn very quickly into emotions. How does that happen? Well, feelings change when I encounter an experience that reminds me of an earlier experience that was either threatening or good or had some emotional content to it. When I encounter at first threats or opportunities, there's body states that arise in conjunction with those experiences. They're recorded, and then later on, I will produce the same body sensations as I encounter something that's similar to the past. Let me give you an example because that's pretty abstract. Suppose in third grade I have a teacher who uh, surprises me with a test that I'm unprepared for or asks me to show my drawing in front of a class and I do other kids laugh at me. I'll tag that teacher as negative. And when I see that teacher again, I'll start to have negative feelings. But I won't only tag that teacher as negative, I'll tag everything that I experience in that situation. I might tag the fact that he's got a beard or he wears a green cardigan. And for a long time afterwards, as I encounter people with beards and green cardigans, I'll also have negative body states that will arise. That's why when people have, for instance, car crashes and they're listening to a tune on the radio, let's say we're listening to Green Day, God forbid, not a big <laughs> And then, when you hear Green Day in the future, you would have a negative response. The same response I have naturally when I hear it. <laughs> editorial comment and still <laughs> inserted directly into the talk. So I think the key is that sometimes feelings are, as we see, correct, and sometimes feelings are completely arbitrary based on the fact that the sensations simply happen to be around when bad things happen to us. If you're eating schnitzel, I don't even know what that is, but it just came <laughs> to mind. If you're eating schnitzel when somebody breaks up 
with you the next time somebody says, would you like some schnitzel, whatever that is, you'll say, no, thank you. Just the thought of it creates tightness in my stomach. On the other hand, if somebody compliments you while you're eating a tempeh Reuben, yum, yum, yum. In the future, when you see that on a menu, you might very well feel pleasant body sensations, and you'll follow that impulse. In fact, throughout our lives, we're checking our body. When we order, when we make decisions, when somebody asks, what would you like to watch on the telly or a movie? When people uh, ask, what would you like to do today? You're not actually rationally checking and running through actually what you're doing. Damasio showed in his wonderful research, which was summarized in his book, Descartes' Error, is that actually we're checking the body, seeing what we've experienced in the past. Suppose you're an interior decorator, and somebody says, oh, should I paint this room a kind of nauseating yellow or... Any other, any other color in the entire color spectrum, and if you were having a bad day, your feelings would have said, let's go with this color. No, it's fine. Um, whatever. So, uh, when people, interestingly enough, experience strokes or, um, I can't remember what they're called, that affects the part of the brain called the insula, which reports your feelings back to your right hemisphere, which cre creates emotions from your feelings. If you can't read your body due to a uh, damage to the insula, you won't be able to make decisions. People who have lesions, that's what it's called, in the insula, lose their ability to make decisions, and they get stuck trying to choose rationally, but it turns out in our lives, most of the choices we face, there are no real rational justifications. Why do I go this way to work instead of this way? If you don't have your feelings, you could logically debate that choice forever. So we're constantly checking our body and going along with what our feelings say, and our feelings are created by earlier experiences. That's why the Buddha said karma the past actions arise in the present primarily through our feelings. The way emotions turn, feelings turn into emotions is that when I encounter something that in the past created comfort or discomfort, it will activate a part of my brain called the amygdala. That will release cortisol and trigger my sympathetic nervous system if I've seen something frightening. I'll get all tense then the insula will report that back to my right hemisphere, which will create fear or worry. And then my left hemisphere, my thinking part of my brain largely, will say, oh no, there's a feeling, I'm going to do something now about it, but I want to claim credit for what I'm doing, so I'll narrate the entire experience. Thoughts play far less of a role than we actually believe in making our decisions. We narrate our lives, but the choices and actions we make are actually generally, they are activated by feelings, which then activate emotions, which then activate impulses in the striatum, and we just do habitual routines, and then we narrate why we did it. We tend to essentially think we're in control, but a whole host of unconscious mechanisms in the brain are actually making most of the choices. 
unless you override your feelings. Now, if you override your feelings when you don't need to, if you're a good interior designer and somebody asks you what color to paint a wall, you don't need to do that. You just follow your gut because by that point you've ex developed a lot of experience. If you're a talented director and somebody says, how should we frame this shot, you don't logically figure it out. You go by your gut. You visualize it. You see which possible visuals feel good, and then you just follow your gut. So generally, it's worthwhile trusting our feelings, or what people commonly call intuition, in areas of life where we have a lot of experience. However, there are certain areas in life where we might find that our feelings constantly lead us in the wrong direction. If you grow up in a family where love is defined as something you have to chase after rather than is given to you, then you will find yourself very attracted to men or women that withhold love. And you'll fall into the pattern because love has been defined as something that's elusive and not given to you, but something you have to win. So you'll chase after the same type of people. So our feelings can push us into behaviors that lock us in to repetitive suffering in our life. Very often, people who've experienced traumas, when they encounter anything that reminds them of the original trauma, even though it had nothing to do with the actual violence they experienced, anything that remotely reminds them of it, they will experience strong feelings that will urge them to attack or to flee. I did volunteer work uh, with um, people who grew up in very violent situations who were in prisons and then were let go of prisons, let out of prisons and put into halfway houses where I would teach mindfulness and meditation. And I once made the mistake of just gently touch, touching someone on the, on the shoulder and he wheeled around and he looked like he was going to punch me because clearly the touch for him was associated with violence. And it took him a moment before he saw that I was not the people that, were, that he grew up with, that I was not going to harm him. So our feelings can, if we experience unusual or damaging uh, previous events in our life, can push us towards very reactive, very frightened, very guarded states. Furthermore, negative feelings can cause us to chase after a lot of addictive substances and behaviors that alleviate bad feelings. So when we experience heartbreak or loneliness, rather than pay attention to the feelings and act accordingly, we might react to the feelings in an addictive routine. Let me give you an example. People who feel the sensation of loneliness in the body, which is a contraction largely in the chest, might find themselves driven to immediately shop or go on Facebook or do something that's not in their long-term best interest, simply to remove the feeling. I'd like to read to you a wonderful quote by the great Bessel van der Kolk, 
And I love saying his name. I wish I was born with the name Bessel van der Kolk. Well, I don't, but I just like saying it. It's a, it's a wonderful name. He's the world's most respected psychologist for trauma, and um, he wrote uh, what's probably con now considered to be one of the most important textbooks on relating to trauma called The Body Keeps the Score. And he says that people take drugs to make their feelings disappear. They cut themselves and starve themselves to make their feelings disappear. They have sex with anyone who comes along to make feelings disappear. Once you have these horrible sensations in your body, you'll do anything to make them go away. Very often, lying at the core of addictive, habitual routines that lead to suffering is an internal body state that we can't be with, we can't stay with, and we need to get rid of. Damasia, the great neuroscientist, says the brain is the body's um, captive audience, and fee feelings are the winners amongst all equals. Most of our decision-making is shaped by somatic states. Somatic states are our feelings. Or sometimes we have addictive thoughts that we rely on to get rid of difficult feelings. Interestingly enough, many people worry or catastrophize, which means think of terrible outcomes, as a way to push away from their recognition the painful feelings in the body, the dukkha vedana, as the Buddha called it. Even scary, catastrophizing, worrying thoughts of financial ruin, or I'm sure I have cancer, or whatever thoughts we have, we will prefer rather than feel the feelings. Amazingly, so much of suffering goes away, as the Buddha noted, when we simply learn to feel our feelings safely, without needing to get rid of them, without needing to push them away, without needing to get rid of them. The negative feelings are created by the brachial and the hypogastric nerves, and they create tension when we experience something that in the past we found frightening. Positive feelings are parasympathetic, and they involve what's called the vagus nerve. And as you know, what happens in Vegas stays in... Never mind. We always have to pause after a terrible joke to, uh, to just uh, warn it. Uh, so, the Vegas nerve is what allows us to connect, to develop empathetic, you know, core emotional relationships with other people. Most of us are programmed to be armored and defensive until we experience something when we encounter a stranger that allows us to, re to relax, to connect. The vagus nerve is what does that. It runs from the, it literally goes from the brain stem to the front of the face, down the throat, down the chest into the stomach. That's why we experience almost all of our, our feelings and core emotional, somatic emotions in the front of the body because that's where the vagus nerve runs. The vagus nerve controls the face, throat, diaphragm, and abdomen, and it 
is the core nerve that allows us to connect and adapt to changing situations without fight, flight, or freeze impulses being triggered. Your vagus nerve is what stimulates your eye muscles so that you can lock in and lock in with somebody's glance and sit there with a loved one and look into their eyes for eye contact. It synchronizes facial expressions so that we can mirror other people's emotions and make them feel understood. It adjusts the muscles in the ears so that we can hear the voice of a loved one or a friend and follow that voice in a crowded room where there are many other voices. It creates ease, physical ease, so that we can relax and not be guarded around people that we love. So the vagal, vagus nerve is key to being able to sit with painful feelings and not be pushed around or driven by them to react in repetitive, regressive, ultimately unsatisfying, habitual, addictive routines. We simply need to be able to be with our feelings. So how do we do that? A high vagal tone has been suggested as the way we can be with our feelings without being pushed around with them by them. When we have a high vagal tone, which simply means your heart beats in unison with the way you breathe. People who have a low vagal tone, they breathe at a very different rhythm than their heart. The closer your heart aligns to the way you breathe, the higher the vagal tone, the more you can control your feelings and be with difficult emotions. So, in fact, the vagal tone prevents the big jumps in heart rate that when we have a panic attack, a fight, flight, or freeze is all started by a jump in heart rate, a jump in uh, the change in the arterial uh, pumping of blood, it's a change in uh, the amount of cortisol. All of that is controlled by the vagal tone. So how, you might ask me, Josh, <laughs> pause, meaningful pause, how do I go about changing this vagal tone that you talk so much about? Uh, and by the way, if you'd like to read more about it, the wonderful Barbara Fredrickson, the head of the North Carolina or South Carolina University's uh, psychology department, has, uh, wrote a book called Love 2.0, which summarized her clinical studies on uh, vagal vagus uh, toning. And there's four ways that we can uh, actually not only develop a safe container for feelings, but also largely begin to change the negative feelings associated with uh, events that in the past were scary, but no longer are. For example, when I was a kid, I was terrified of cats because one time a cat scratched me. And now, as an adult, I own two completely mischievous uncontrollable uh, cats, uh, which I love dearly, and uh, simply because as an adult, our vagus term, tone generally goes up and allows us to be with and change difficult, feel the painful feelings. So we can recode experience, stuff that makes us activated and frightened, we can recode. In fact, Changing the vagal tone has been shown even to help with procrastination, which happens when people 
experience negative feelings towards tasks that they know they need to do to make progress in life. I hope I've sold this by now. So uh, the first way is, one, extend the length of the out-breath. Your in-breath is not controlled by parts of the brain that have any have any role in setting the vagal tone. When you're having a panic attack or when you're frightened, you'll notice that you gulp air because the parts of the brain that control the in-breath are hardwired and will not uh, change. And if you're really frightened, you will gulp air whether you like it or not. But you can actually deactivate yourself after you've gulped air by subtly extending the length of the out-breath. Studies have shown that if you do this in as short a period as one month, you start to develop neural overrides of fight, flight, or freeze impulses. It's all with the exhalation. Interestingly enough, uh, the Buddha called nirvana, or nibbana, the word is coined after the ancient word to breathe out. So, Fear, action, reactivity, have to do something, have to react. Deep, fast, uncontrollable in-breaths. Relaxation, safe container with feelings, long out-breaths. Number two, um, create a safe physical container for the feelings to be known. What we generally do when we experience a negative feeling, such as gut wrench or heartbreak, or the tightness in the throat when we feel disempowered and people aren't listening to us, what we'll do is not only have the feeling there, but then we'll react. The rest of our body will get tight. Our arms, our legs, our jaws will lock. We'll develop this armored shell. So allow the feelings to be there in the front center of the body, but relax the reactions in the rest of the body. Soften the arms, soften the buttocks, soften the legs, untighten the fists, relax the jaw, but allow the feelings to be there and just stay with them. Again, the vagus nerve runs down the front of the body, so we want to not override it. We want to stay and allow the feelings from here to here to be allowed with the exception of the jaw, you can relax that. But everything else, relax and soften. Um, studies have shown if you can settle the eyes when we're in panic, when we're activated, when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, your eyes will dart about. If you can just remember to close the eyes and settle and look straight ahead if you're in a frightening situation or if you're simply activated or furious or whatever, you'll find that along with out-breathing, you can actually stay longer with difficult feelings. Barbara Fredrickson, in her book, showed that people who do meta-benefactor meditations have a much higher vagal tone after as short as two months of time. That's simply a meditation where you hold in mind an image of someone who you feel close with, or you trust, or you feel empathetically connected with. Just hold their image in your mind and say, may I feel 
peaceful, may you feel peaceful, may I feel connected, any simple phrase you repeat will over time create, help you create a safe container. Finally, couples that develop times of what's known as nonverbal attunement, which is, again, looking in each other's eyes, mirroring emotions, having times where they're simply gently touching each other or maintaining close proximity without language have been shown to release far more oxytocin, which helps with toning the vagal tone as well. Oxytocin is the neuropeptide you depend on to feel positive emotions that are not uh, driven by, along with serotonin. Uh, the Many times we, when we get addicted to substances, we're relying on dopamine, which has a very short lifespan in the brain, it gets sucked up very quickly, and it's behind almost all of our addictive behaviors. On the other hand, the feelings that make us feel connected and safe and loved and cherished and, and non-reactive, oxytocin and serotonin, they're subtle. Nobody runs out to the corner store to try to buy oxytocin. Nobody does cocaine to get oxytocin, all those things are associated with dopamine. It's the serotonin and oxytocin which are sustainable, and they are released by visualizing people we feel close to, and when we are with people, rather than getting caught up in stories or ideas, taking a moment to lock in emotionally. When you do that, you will find that you deactivate the feelings that create reactivity.